and this is true for not just the Air Force, but some of the other services as well. It, it was a joke when I worked at RAND for many years that the last slide of every briefing, didn't matter whether it was a briefing on manpower or logistics or anything, um, should the last slide should say, and oh, and buy more munitions. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. My co-host, J.J. Gertler, is off this week. Later in the program, Dr. Ted Harshberger, one of the nation's leading air power minds, has joined the team at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's going to join us. But first, a look at the news on All Wings Considered. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell's sponsors are daily podcast Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra-intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. U.S. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall yesterday issued a reading list to help airmen better understand the global strategic environment with works on China, its history and grand strategy, geopolitical competition, India, Taiwan, and modernization. Germany, starting on June 12, will host NATO's biggest ever air deployment exercise with 10,000 personnel and 250 aircraft from 25 nations to practice responding to an attack on a member nation. Of the total, 2,000 airmen and 100 aircraft will be American. The Government Accountability Office warns the cost of the most desirable F-35 Lightning II variant, the Block 4, is years behind schedule and some $16.5 billion over budget, up $1 billion from the last report. And speaking of cost, Northrop Grumman CEO Kathy Warden says her company must absorb $1.2 billion in cost to cover growth on the fixed-price B-21 bomber development program. And Nebraska Republican Representative Don Bacon writes in Aviation Week that the Looking Glass Nuclear Command and Control aircraft should be operating airborne 24-7 as it did during the Cold War. Joining us now is Dr. Ted Harshberger, one of the nation's leading air power thinkers who led the RAND Corporation's Project Air Force for many years. He recently joined the team at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he is a non-resident senior associate uh, and one of the latest air power thinkers to be joining the great think tank. Uh, and he did so after a stint at Lockheed Martin's analysis center that has since unfortunately been disbanded. Ted, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute honor and pleasure having you on. Oh, thanks very much, Vago, and thanks to you and JJ for the invite. It's always fun to talk. Uh, indeed, and I'm very sorry that JJ couldn't be here uh, because you guys have a very, very long history together. Uh, JJ, obviously, having spent time uh, at Rand uh, as well, he's he's another Randite, and he's also another CSISite, and he continues uh, to be uh, affiliated with CSIS uh, as well among his many affiliations. Um, Ted, I want to start, obviously, this is a question we ask almost all of our guests. Russia's war on Ukraine uh, mm-hmm. has uh, b- is ongoing with devastating uh, consequences. We just saw an incredible uh, incident, uh, flooding incident, where a very important dam across the Dnipro River uh, was destroyed. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But everybody is trying to draw different conclusions uh, from uh, this war and try to make you know, and, and try to determine what are the conclusions uh, that apply more broadly than this conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine or in a European context. 
And how many of these lessons are actually applicable to the Asia Pacific, where we are trying mm-hmm. to deter great power and, if necessary, fight and win them? From from your standpoint, what are sort of the uh, right time immemorial lessons or reminders from this? And then what are the elements of this conflict that are actually specific and applicable to an Indo-Pacific scenario? Yeah, uh, it's it's the question uh, of of the hour, uh, Vago. I, I, let me start by saying I think that the the primary lesson learner from Ukraine should be Xi and China, uh, and they should take some lessons to heart that hopefully would help with deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, uh, learning yet again that authoritarian regimes lie to themselves about their own capabilities. That's something we've learned multiple times. At, at, um, and it, it's pretty clear it happened again with Russia. Uh, we probably had pretty good insight about what the Russians thought they could do. Uh, and you know, yet again, we learned that they didn't tell themselves the truth. Uh, and even if we knew what they were saying to each other, it didn't really help us understand their true capabilities. I think Xi should think very hard about that uh, within his own uh, organizations. Um, so that's 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 an important thing that to consider long-term for how to assess the likelihood of conflict and the likelihood that these kinds of conflicts will be successful. And hopefully, like I said, it, it ends up on the side of deterrence. Uh, for, for me, um, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, commercial technologies being employed. And I think that's an important thing to consider. I don't personally know enough about the details of how those have played out to be a, have a good judgment about them. But what I can observe is that um, once again, we find out that, um, and I'm in, I think I'm in agreement with Bill LaPlante on this, that, that engineered military systems that operate under duress with people operating them who are under duress are the thing that tends to create a distinction in outcomes on modern battlefields. So wh- why I would say that is, is that um, once, when you actually are in conflict, as they are in Ukraine, it is not a straightforward, clean situation in any respect. You have somewhat poorly trained people at times, operating systems that they're not well-versed in. Uh, the, the conditions they're operating under are extraordinarily difficult. And that just does not work unless you've thought it through and worked it pretty hard for a long time. So I, I do think that some of the performance of Western military systems in that conflict can is impressive because it reflects a lot of work to try and make it happen uh, under duress. Um, so that's that's a pretty big finding in my view, um, and it, it's it's not one that should give us a lot of joy because it's hard to build those systems. It takes a long time. They're expensive. And pretty clearly, we don't have enough of them right now. So uh, not not a purely good news story there, but I think that's one of the key things I, I observe when I look at it. The reason we keep asking everybody on the show this question is that everybody brings a different dimension to it. And those are both, um, you know, sort of a different way of looking at it, Ted. Uh, one, one of your strong suits is always looking at something uh, a little bit differently than, than other folks are looking at it. Um, you're also a... Um, 
Oh, by the way, how much of the capabilities, and this is a debate that goes right up to the White House, right? And it said that Jake mm-hmm. Sullivan has has said this to folks that, you know, when we talk about, hey, you know, we can't burn through, for example, GMLRS stocks or, uh, uh, you know, shorter range weapon stocks. Uh, there are those who say that, that Jake Sullivan makes the case, look, we've got to give this capability to the Ukrainians because it's actually not that applicable in the Asia Pacific. From your That's standpoint, true. how much of that which we are burning through in Ukraine in the support and aid we're giving Kiev is actually taking away or drying up magazines that could be applicable in an Indo-Pacific capacity. Yeah. Um, so there, the Indo-Pacific's a pretty big place. So if you if you, if you include Korea there, um, then it's, you know, I think some of the uh, capabilities being employed in Ukraine are, are very applicable in Korea. If you're talking about a defense of Taiwan, much less so if you're talking about um, sustaining freedom of the seas in the South China Seas, even less so, right? Um, so it it does matter what you're talking about. Um, I I personally believe that these weapons are being employed, frankly, in the conflict for which they were designed. Um, and if you're looking at it, this is sort of a very cold-blooded realpolitik kind of thing, especially given the 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 awful conditions going on in Ukraine. So, but from the United States strategic perspective, these um, weapons degrade long-term Russian capability without us actually being in a direct shooting conflict with the with the Russians is a better use of these weapons than training for them in Leavenworth. Um, so, to me. I don't see the downside in drawing down some of these stocks. I also believe you can build them back up again. They're pretty straight. All these weapons are in production. So um, it may take a while, but I don't see that as undercutting deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, except if you're concerned about the, the amount of force you have on the, on the Korean Peninsula. Um, which, which obviously is an important consideration, again, as we draw down yeah. um, uh, capa- uh, uh, c- certainly from some of the capacity we have around the world. I, w- mm-hmm. I want to take you to uh, the dam. Um, senior leaders are blaming the Russians for destroying the dam across the Dnieper mm-hmm. uh, River uh, that has flooded vast areas. Some believe the Russians blew the dam to impede the, the long-awaited Ukrainian uh, offensive, even though doing so may have hurt Russian troops and even the people living on their side in their occupied areas. Mm-hmm. Um, for some, there are lessons that the Chinese or any other adversary might calculate that it has more to gain by destroying, for example, space networks, right? Mm-hmm. It would hurt them. But on the other hand, they might calculate that they have some gain from, from that. What does the dam breach tell us about the nature of war and what is and isn't a fair target and how we need to think about stuff? Because for some, it was like unthinkable that this might happen. And actually, it was thinkable, and it was yeah. probably thinkable for some pretty calculating, cold reasons. Yeah. So um, you, you said it correctly, Vago. Uh, um, uh, this type of thing, uh, I'll go back to a historical example. Uh, William of Orange flooded the Netherlands to stop the French army from advancing on Amsterdam. He flooded his own country. Um, it broke down all the levees. Um, th- this is a tactic that 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 uh, nations have used and armies have used um, when they feel like it's beneficial to their war aims. Um, you know, the, the issue in Ukraine isn't is at times very specific actions by 
individuals and organizations. But the real problem is that the war war is is um, kind of an obscene violation of most norms that we can consider at, at, in, in its broad sense. So once they've crossed that threshold, it doesn't surprise me at all and shouldn't surprise anybody that they'd be willing to attack any kind of target. And they pretty much have. So the dam doesn't surprise me. It, it you know, saddens me and, and makes me concerned for the people downstream. Um, uh, to the, the broader analogy with China and uh, or space conflict is absolutely applicable. Yes, if we get into a shooting war with people, um, then targets will be struck that we would prefer not be and might even feel uh, is, is um, we could even be puzzled by why our adversary would think that was advantageous. But um, it shouldn't be surprising at all. It's, you know, horrifying. And, and uh, I, I'll leave it to people who know better than I do about the, the validity of it as, a, as a, an act of war or whether it's a war crime or not. But it's not surprising. And clearly, we're going to see what the implications are for the conflict um, going forward, given that there's still a lot of water in that dam that is still to empty out uh, over the course of uh, of the coming days and and whatever damage is in its wake. Um, let, let me go to something more specific air power uh, wise. Mm-hmm. Um, senior U.S. Air Force, because it appears that, for example, the dam may have been a, literally an inside job, right, given the yeah. structure that it was an explosive or a large series of explosives that were put in the dam as opposed to a bomb hitting it. Anybody mm-hmm. who remembers the dam buster emissions from the legendary 617 squadron mm-hmm. knew that you can't just hit it right. Barnes Wallace rolling bomb bottom of the, et cetera. This one seems to be, you know, the, the, the bomb may have been actually in the structure of the dam and a large one. Senior U.S. Air Force leaders have been building a vision about the capabilities they feel they need to deter conflict uh, and, if necessary, prevail, no matter where it is in the world. This is being weighted to capabilities for the Indo-Pacific in terms of longer-range aircraft, longer-range weaponry, um, uh, You know, the B-21 bomber being an important part uh, of that. There's going to be a new high-end fighter, new high-end unmanned capabilities, right? Special mm-hmm. mission aircraft, even a new tanker, uh, and we were even looking at a new transport capability. Do, do you think we're shaping the force in the right way to do the kinds of things we need to be doing and including the munitions for the kind of adversary that has actually spent the last several decades, not just studying us, but actually methodically building the capabilities to methodically degrade our own advantages, especially in the Western Pacific. Yeah, so I'll start with one part of the question, Raga, which is which is munitions. Uh, and this is true for not just the Air Force, but some of the other services as well. It, it was a joke when I worked at RAND for many years that the last slide of every briefing um, should uh, just it didn't matter whether it was a briefing on manpower or logistics or anything. Um, should the last slide should say and oh and buy more munitions. So, it chronically under underfunded set of capabilities in the weapons and munitions accounts, um, in in part because. The, the planning assumptions usually involve relatively short conflicts and an assumption about ability to build those stocks back up again. You know, and we're seeing what, how that plays out in Ukraine right now. So the answer is they, the, the U.S. in general, not just the U.S. Air Force, um, chronically underfunds those accounts. And it needs just larger stockpiles of these things, more than 
they think they might need because it seems like we always find out we needed more. So I, that's an easy one. It's not easy, actually, to tell you the truth. It's not an easy thing to do in, in the way the budget is put together and adjusted. Um, but it is a straightforward finding that's been consistent for 50 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, nothing new there, but it's hard. Um, with respect to um, the capabilities that are under design, um, my personal observation based upon a lot of work by better people than me has been that uh, in the Indo-Pacific, as, as opposed to the European theater in many ways, the, the biggest challenge for the Air Force is lies on the ground. Um, it, it lies on, uh, in the vulnerability of forces that are in that theater when they're prior to their, them getting in the air. And that's true for all the classes of aircraft that you just mentioned. Um, getting them further back is a way to diminish that vulnerability, but not eliminate it. Um, probably the, the best thing the Air Force has done in that theater has been um, to disperse its points of access uh, far more broadly than they once were. I mean, you have to give people a lot of credit for this. And it's not just because it creates more targets or aim points. It's because um, it also involves more nation states and, and raises the threshold for those kinds of attacks to include more potential adversaries for China. So, um, you know, the choices they make about capability and, and which new systems need to be built and what their design is, um, it, they're important. But uh, if we don't address that broader vulnerability to initial attacks and, and the infrastructure on the ground, I think none of them is going to fix whatever problems are being observed. At, at the end of the day, uh, Ted, air power only works if you have enough actual airplanes, right? Yeah. Uh, JJ's made this joke a couple of times on the program as well, um, but it's not funny. We're now recapitalizing at a very low rate. I asked General Kelly, uh, the outgoing commander of the Air Combat Command, that same uh, question uh, about whether or not we're going to have enough assets, right? We had recapitalized mm -hmm. at a couple of hundred airplanes. We're recapitalizing at about 72, right? It's like 48 F-30 uh, fives and the rest are uh, F-15EXs or, or 42 or 25 or something something like that in terms of the math. Um, will the Air Force have enough planes to be able to execute the missions it needs to execute even in one theater, much less two theaters? Uh, JJ's, of course, right about the, about a, a fundamental calculation, which is why, you know, generations of air combat command commanders have not wanted to retire aircraft, even when they found them difficult to maintain or sustain at readiness, because once they're gone, it's very, very hard to get them back. And we, nobody envisions a ramp like we saw during the Reagan years, you know, when F-16s and F-15s were built at extremely high rates, um, in, in some ways causing our concerns now. Right. Um, right. Uh, I, the, the answer is in a short warning scenarios, probably not. Um, if you look at anything that allows any generation of the force in those theaters, it's not it's not clear to me that that um, it's it's actually a numbers problem in terms of the assets that you can bring to bear 
if you're allowed to make some assumptions about deploying some of the force into theater ahead of the conflict. Um, uh, it, it, you know, we have a, a fairly substantial force. Now, my, my Air Force colleagues will hate my guts, but it's it's not clear clear to me that the that the the problem is an actual wartime scenario that isn't sort of a truly ongoing long-term war. If you if you believe that, then you're going to get attrition over time, and you might run out of forces, it's, and you won't be able to replace them fast enough. Um, the real big problem with our force structure has to do with maintaining its readiness and global posture while also training the people who need to come up through the pipeline and and uh, repairing the ones that are you know that require depot repair. When you look at that flow structure of what it takes to have a truly global air force ready and available in the places where the president wants to put them. That's the problem with the force structure size they have right now. Um, so, I, and that's a problem. That that is that that is a uh, a, a true challenge for them right now. And um, so, I, yeah, I would I would argue for higher rates of recapitalization to get to a place where that posture could be maintained. And there's no there's no let up on that, Vago. You know the the demands for ongoing exercises and deployments and all the rest of it. Uh, even with the diminishment of the of the Middle East as a draw, it is still really challenging for them to maintain. But I don't think it's necessarily uh, when the flag goes up in a in a theater conflict problem. That's my view. But I, I I could be told by people who know better than me right now that I haven't run the numbers in a while, and I'm wrong. <laughs> We've got a little bit of time left, and I want to ask you two important questions. There are some very fundamental questions being asked about the F-35 at this point, and I don't want to get you into problematic territory, obviously, because yeah. you were with Lockheed Martin until uh, very recently. There's a concern about the older jets not having enough capability, the Air Force uh, and the services buying fewer jets than originally planned because they want the later version, but the later version needs the new engine, which they're not going to do. They're going to just upgrade the existing engine, which is going to take time to do it. And oh, by the way, both the Navy and the Air Force are already looking at the new generation combat aircraft, NGAD, mm -hmm. the next generation air dominance aircraft, and the FAXS. And both are looking at a new unmanned collaborative combat aircraft uh, and using differing versions of that. What mm -hmm. are the lessons that we can learn from the past, Ted, to try to yeah. make sure that we can deliver as much capability and upgrade you know, even sophisticated capabilities like that. What can we learn in the from the past to ensure that we keep this relevant? Because it looks like by the time we're getting ready to field the F-35, the services themselves are looking at the next thing after F-35 when they still have a capacity problem, right? They could use a lot more F-35s, but we're not doing the right things to maximize the utility we're getting of the F-35s that we're getting. It's a little frustrating to watch. Uh, it is it is a challenging thing. I, I'll set aside the engine issue, uh, Vago, just because it's government furnished equipment, and I, for the life of me, can't, haven't been able to figure out what the what the story is there. Uh, it's been puzzling all along. Um, uh, so, I can say a couple of things about we've learned about from the past. Um, by the way, I kind of like the F thirty five. I think it's a, it's been a fairly remarkable achievement given what its objectives were and constraints were when it was, you know, when the program was designed and executed. So I think it does a lot of stuff pretty darn well, even given those antecedents. But we should learn from the fact that that 
nothing in the future in this arena should be joint. Nothing. Uh, there's a pretty amazing and I think definitive piece of work by Mark Laurel from Rand came out a few years ago that looked exhaustively at joint fighter programs and makes the case that it just does not work. The arguments made to advance that are wrong. So you won't get cost savings and you'll get mission degradation. Um, and there's examples of that in the F-35. That aircraft is not the aircraft that the Air Force needs, you know, needed when it designed the aircraft. It's way bigger. It's, it, and and it, does it do a lot now? Is it, is it, I think, an effective combat capability and will be into the future? Yeah, and you're looking at co countries like Switzerland buying it. So it's not, it's not a dog. <laughs> Those were real head-to-head -head competitions against other things. So, um, but, but we should learn from this, you know, don't do that again. In terms of keeping things capable and, and, and upgrading over time, you know, go back to the, the KC-135 and the B-52. The, the B-52 was designed, you know, to drop nuclear bombs um, it, it now does everything, um, and including, you know, at times in its life, it's launched spacecraft. The KC-135 was designed as a ride-along tanker, one for one with B-52s. It's, it, it completely altered everything about its existence over the course of its life. So you can keep these things going. And one of the key things to do is to, is to make sure you built in enough size, weight, power, optionality that you can add and subtract stuff to it. And that's, I think these unmanned combat systems are going to be the thing that allows you to do some of that with the, the systems that are, that are in place now, like F-35 and the ones that are coming down the road. Um, mm -hmm. F-35 was supposed to be a collaborative program, get all the services in, and it unfortunately became something that was much, much, um, much, much more complicated. Um, mm -hmm. Well, time and again, I mean, we have had joint strike fighters, whether it was the F-4B-4 in the 1930s or the F-4 Phantom or the A-7. Some of these airplanes started in the Navy side that were adopted by the Air Force. Mm -hmm. What do we need to bear in mind to make sure that whatever collaboration happens between NGAD and FAXX and on the collaborative combat program between the Air Force and the Navy end up being a success? Because we've seen some of these programs end up not being successful for one reason or another. Right? I mean, the Navy hasn't been the biggest advocate of the F-35, I think we could say that uh, charitably, <laughs> uh, right? I mean, it's repeatedly tried to get out of the program, right? And, oh, yeah. and yet yeah. we're here, and the more they use the F-35, the more they like the capabilities they get from the F-35. Putting that aside, what are the lessons from history that will ensure that we have good inner service cooperation in our next future aircraft, not make them make the mistakes of the F-35, but actually yeah. get better capability faster with greater value? So if you remember how the, the F-35, the, the, the Joint Strike Fighter started, it started as JAST, the Joint Aerospace Strategic Technology Program, something like that. It was essentially trying to have the services collaborate around key technologies that would go into future fighters. And it pretty quickly devolved into, we need a replacement for the F-16, so it'll be a single seat you know, fighter aircraft. And then every, and then a whole series of analyses were done to show if you did it, you could get the economies of scale and the cost would drive, be driven down by doing a single joint program. And, and the, the answer is you should do the former. You should try and have the Air Force and the Navy 
and whoever else collaborate around key systems that are going to be on these aircraft. Uh, Comm systems, computing systems, conceivably propulsion systems, um, common interfaces and standards around buses and things like that, so that we can make weapons interoperable between things. But uh, do not try and create a joint program and force uh, an aircraft down the throat of either the Air Force or the Navy that's fundamentally got different mission requirements. I mean, simple things like, you know, a keel and surface area to, to allow sort of low speed, high G turns. Those are things the Air Force does not need. Uh, the Air Force wants some things that the Navy doesn't need. When you, when you try and jam that all into one aircraft, you can do it. The, the F-35 is an example, but the trade-offs you make are damaging uh, to, to cost and capability. And the cost savings never emerge. They never emerge. They have not emerged for F-35, obviously. But the, the history of this is it does not happen. So it's a bad idea to try and run it as a joint program. It's, it's a good idea to, to get inter-service collaboration on key choices about technology that go into their systems. Ted, always a pleasure uh, to talk. JJ sends his uh, very best, and we look forward to welcoming you back on the program in the future. Thanks so very much, and best of luck to you uh, in your new endeavors and your new home uh, or, or temporary or partial home at CSIS. <laughs> Thanks, Bug. I really appreciate it. And thanks for, thanks for the chance to talk to your audience. It's a great one. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.